Good evening to all of you. Hope you are doing well. So, and what should we talk about tonight? Yeah. Yes, uh, I'm waiting for the pen. It's a pen. This one, the teaching, right? Yeah. The pen level, right? Right, yes. But we didn't. Do we, do we get uh, the teaching for this one? Uh, you, you didn't... Uh... She probably misunderstand. You're not going to teach you that tense uh, stage, right? I can? You believe? <laughs> I didn't get it. Uh, sorry. I gave that to you uh, so that you would have it to read and use it as a reference. And I'm very happy to speak to any part of that at any time to answer questions. I'd really like to. And I, mean, I, I could even go through it in, in, in detail. But, um, yeah. So, uh, if you, if, uh, have you had a chance to read it? Oh, I just uh, read the, the Chinese on the board. Yes. Yeah, but I am just thought if I practice at home, how can, how can I know what stage I, I just uh, get in? Well, if you, uh, if you read that and refer to it, um, hopefully you can figure out which stage you're at. But uh, I can go over that to help you. Mm -hmm. Okay? Thank you. And uh, so does that sound like a good idea to go over the ten stages? Okay. It's more easier. You you can example what uh, the label is that. Uh, <coughs> okay. Thank you. I'll give some examples. By the way, uh, the guided meditation that I did after lunch, uh, was that useful to you? To Excellent. Yeah, that was good for you. I know some of you are more experienced meditators might not have done much for you, but... <laughs> it's great. Was, was it good for you? Yes, yes, wonderful. Okay. So, just to briefly describe those ten stages. Well, the first, the first stage is you have to establish a regular practice. So, you know you're, um, you're working on that stage if you have the in intention to, to do that. And you know that you have succeeded in that stage You've, uh, when you have a regular practice established and every day you, you practice for that amount of time and during that period of time you uh, are very diligent. You don't allow yourself to uh, daydream or not make the effort. So that's a simple one, right? And with regard to that one, uh, I find that uh, for most people, it's best to uh, have a regular time and always meditate at the same time every day, because otherwise uh, there's a tendency not to get around to it, and uh, it doesn't happen. So. The second and third stages are two stages that are characterized by uh, sometimes forgetting the meditation object and having forgotten it, having your mind wander. And so, 
if that happens to you during the meditation session, then you are uh, in either the second or third stage of the practice. Although I have to say for somebody that's in uh, uh, fourth or fifth or sixth stage of the practice, uh, and occasionally even the higher stages, it doesn't mean that you won't uh, from time to time have an experience of mind wandering, because uh, it does happen and uh, it, it depends on the state of distraction that you have in your mind or agitation in your mind when you sit down. But the difference between those two, between the second and the third stage, is in the second stage, the periods of mind wandering are long. Now what I mean by that is uh, that you may start off following the breath and then you forget it and then when you realize that you have that you've been thinking about other things and have forgotten the breath. Several minutes may have passed. And in the second stage also, that happens fairly frequently. So that over the whole course of sitting, maybe for 45 minutes or an hour, depending on how long you sit for it, uh, the uh, amount of time that you were mind-wandering compared to the amount of time you were attending to the meditation object the amount of time in mind wandering is probably more than the amount of time that you were actually attending to the sensations of the breath. But as you practice just continually bringing your attention back, that will, that will change and there will be a shift. And so that uh, the periods where you have mind wandering tend to be short, uh, sometimes only a few seconds. And the periods when your mind is not wandering tend to be long, like many minutes at a time. And so that's the, what the third stage is. And it's an important difference because in the third stage, now you have long periods that you can focus on the meditation object. You can become aware of the kinds of distractions that are arising in your mind. You can start guarding against those distractions so that uh, uh, before you lose uh, the uh, awareness of the, of the breath, you bring your mind back to the breath. Then at some point your skill at directing and sustaining your attention becomes such that you no longer forget the meditation object and then you are at the fourth stage of the practice. That doesn't mean that there's not many other things going on in your mind at the same time, because there are uh, many thoughts, and uh, your mind is often distracted by uh, bodily sensations and also by sounds around you. But you don't forget the meditation object. You don't completely lose awareness of the breath as a result of that. In that stage you'll notice that sometimes the awareness of the breath has been displaced by some distraction, usually by a thought. So you're thinking about something, you're still aware of the breath, but you're thinking about something at the same time. <coughs> and that thought is actually, you're more aware of that thought than you are of the breath. So we would call that thought a gross distraction. 
And we would call the thoughts that are in the background of your awareness while you're still focused on the breath, we would call those subtle distractions. So your practice in the fourth stage is to keep a subtle distraction from becoming a gross distraction. In other words, one of those many thoughts that is, is present in the background of your awareness, together with the meditation object, to keep one of those from displacing the meditation object so that it now come, becomes in the background. And so that's what your practice is whenever you realize that has occurred to bring it back and to guard against that happening when you see that uh, when you see that your mind is being drawn towards some other thought, then uh, you let that go and you come back to the meditation object until your mind becomes so trained that that tends not to happen anymore. The other thing that happens in this stage, and usually it starts happening a little earlier when you're in the third stage as well, is you will start experiencing strong dullness that leads to drowsiness and maybe falling asleep. And so the other thing that you need to do uh, when you're in the fourth stage is to guard against that and when you feel strong dullness, uh, drowsiness develop, then you need to correct for it. You need to wake yourself up and, and cause yourself to become more alert. And then after some time you are able to recognize this uh, strong dullness before it becomes strong and keep it from arising. And after a while the tendency for drowsiness to occur uh, becomes greatly diminished. So at that point, when you no longer have strong distractions that are able to cause the meditation object to go into the background, and you no longer have strong dullness that's able to cause uh, drowsiness, then we would say that you're in the fifth stage. So an example of a meditator in the fifth stage, they sit down, they might count the first ten breaths, um, they might have a lot of a lot of thoughts and agitation in their mind at first, um, but fairly quickly they can get their mind to settle down so that all those thoughts, while they're there, they stay in the background, and they will uh, keep strong. They they have no difficulty keeping strong dullness or drowsiness from developing. So at this stage, what they will notice is that after they've been attending to the meditation object for a period of time, maybe 5, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, that it starts to become vague and not as clear. And they can sense that their mind is becoming uh, uh, slightly dull. And so recognizing that, they want to bring their mind up to the, uh, a very strong state of clear awareness vivid perception of the meditation object. And by doing that repeatedly over and over again, they train the mind not... Uh, you train the mind so the mind doesn't so easily tend to slip into this subtle dullness. And so the mind stays bright and clear uh, on the meditation object. So now that person is in the sixth stage. So a person in the sixth stage after they sit down to practice and their mind settles down, um, they don't have a problem with dullness. They don't have a problem with distractions replacing the meditation object, but there are still many thoughts present in the background of their awareness. 
And so in the sixth stage, they are working to uh, reduce that by being very closely focused on the meditation object. And basically what happens here is by refusing to allow your attention to be shared by the distractions, those other parts of your mind that keep bringing up those distracting thoughts and memories and feelings, and that part of your mind that's attending to sounds and keeps thrusting sounds into your awareness or bodily sensations, those parts of your mind, because you refuse to, to share your awareness uh, with those thoughts and, and sensations, they cease to present them. And so you have this, uh, uh, you now have uh, a, a concentration where your mind is steady on the meditation object, and the number of thoughts that are present becomes relatively few. And those thoughts that do come just arise and pass away without causing the mind to move towards them. And when that happens, you're in the seventh stage. So a person in the seventh stage can focus their mind on the meditation object. They have no problem with dullness. They have very few uh, uh, thoughts in their mind and there's only loud sounds or strong sensations in their body that are particularly noticeable. By and large, most distractions that arise pass away fairly quickly. Uh, and to use a metaphor to describe how you are responding to those, uh, they come and go without you. you. You may be aware that they came and gone, but you give them no more attention than you would to the random car passing on the street while you're having a conversation with a friend, or the clouds passing through the sky. You may have some awareness of their presence, but there is the, the mind takes no interest in them. And in the seventh stage of the practice, this is where, uh, uh, to describe what it's like, your breath is very calm and, and peaceful, your awareness of it is very uh, sharp and clear, uh, the only thoughts are just like whispers in the background. And at this time you're very likely to experience uh, strong energy sensations in your, in your body. Uh, you may experience uh, uh, sensations uh, on your skin like tingling or goosebumps or coolness or warmth or little waves of pleasure that just seem to pass over the surface of your body or you may feel some feeling of heat or sometimes it may feel like there's a breeze blowing across your skin. Uh, can be pins and needles. Uh, with different people, it's different kinds of sensations that manifest, and they are hair, they, they are the signs of some important uh, developments in your in, in the experience associated with your concentration. At the at the same time that you're feeling these unusual sensations in your body in the seventh stage. It may, in those same meditations, you may more and more frequently have the experience where your body feels very, very still and very comfortable. And there's no desire to move it. And as a matter of fact, if the thought of moving your body comes, you don't want to move your body. 
even when the meditation sit ends, it feels so nice just to stay still that you really you don't you don't want to move, you don't want to end the meditation. Um, now, in the seventh stage, though, what makes it different from the sixth is you don't have all of these thoughts in the background. What makes it different than the one that follows it, the eighth stage, is that you have to always be on guard because if you relax your vigilance, uh, some of those stray passing thoughts can start to hang around and then you start having more and more thoughts come. So you have to be vigilant, otherwise uh, your concentration will begin to deteriorate and you'll begin to have these distractions coming up again. The next thing you know, you can be mind-wandering. If you <laughs> so. But in the eighth stage, it becomes relatively effortless. You don't need to exert this effort to uh, sustain your concentration. Very rarely is there a tendency for uh, there to be any increase in the number of thoughts that arise, and it, it's relatively easy for you to stay uh, centered and calm. Likewise, because your concentration is now effortless, you can move your attention around easily without disturbing your concentration. You can explore the sensations in your body, and doing that won't, won't break your concentration. You can attend to sounds and it won't disturb your concentration. The other thing that you can do, uh, especially after a little time, of uh, very, developing a very strong effortless concentration, is that you can even cease to remain focused on the meditation object or on any particular object. And you can just expand your awareness in a space-like way and then just observe anything that happens to arise, any sensation, any thought, and just watch it arise and pass away. So that rather than being focused on one point, the mind is still, it doesn't need a point to focus on anymore. It stays still even without a focal point. And so you can practice uh, what's sometimes called choiceless awareness. You're not making any decision about where, uh, what arises in the field of your attention. You just observe whatever happens to you. And of course, because your mind is very calm and still, it's not a thousand things at once like it would be right now. Instead, it's just one thing at a time or, or uh, very, very few things. And sometimes there's hardly anything there and your mind is just calm and still and peaceful and bright. In this eighth stage uh, of uh, concentration, you will start experiencing meditative joy. And uh, this, this, you may have had moments of this earlier on. Uh, you may have had periods of this that, where they came and went when you're in the seventh stage. But now in the eighth stage, you'll start to have uh, stronger and more lasting periods of joy and happiness. And this is often associated with the feeling of energy in your body. Uh, one way, one form that often takes is the energy becomes very strong and you feel it moving around in your body. It may actually cause your body to start moving physically. But at some point, that energy starts to flow very smoothly in your body. And then it just seems to go right up to your head and spread like a very, a very pleasant, very delicious feeling that just spreads throughout your whole body and reaches every part of it. 
and then you at, at this point you've gone beyond just enjoying the stillness and the comfort of stillness to now you're not really aware of any of the normal body sensations anymore no pain no pressure no touch things like that your body is just filled with this very pleasant sensation and there there is this sort of joyful happiness that you feel and uh, that can that that can become very strong and that can become distracting so what you do then the ninth stage is basically you get used to that joy and happiness so they cease to be a distraction you cease to be fascinated by them and they're replaced instead by a very strong feeling of tranquility your mind is still joyful but it's joyful in a very tranquil peaceful way okay and there's a feeling of happiness but it's a contented happiness it's not an excited happiness earlier on in the in the eighth stage some people it's so strong that joy they feel so excited that they can't even continue the meditation they have to get up and go tell somebody about it they have to go run up you know <laughs> and, you know and, and they still feel it even after they get up but it's got so much energy in it it's got so much energy in this that they can't even just sit there sit there and, and enjoy it and that's one of the ways it changes in the ninth stage is the meditator actually gets tired of I mean you have all that you know all that energy and that agitation and it's like you know would rather uh, would rather not have that and then that's when it begins to change into tranquility and at the same time the person starts to feel a lot of equanimity they'll notice this uh, they'll notice this uh, even more when they get up from their meditation that you know they uh, they they cease to react so strongly you know to things something's unpleasant doesn't bother them something's uh, something's pleasant it's it's just nice it's not like they have to have it or they can just let it come and let it go this even happens though in meditation whereas earlier on uh, maybe there's some noise or somebody coughing and it disturbs you and it interrupts your concentration but you when you get to this state of this this tranquility and this equanimity that uh, somebody coughs it's just that's nice <laughs> That's quite all right. It's just that's just it's just a cough. Doesn't bother you at all. It, 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 about the only feeling that it gives you is a, is a feeling of oh, how nice. <laughs> so, and then when when that becomes very strong and consolidated, that's the tenth stage. So the tenth stage, that's what we call a fully developed samatha or access concentration because it gives you access to uh, the jhanas, the, the deep absorption, and it also gives you access to uh, vipassana, to insight. And the way that we can characterize that state is you have very strong, stable concentration. Uh, you have very bright, clear, mindful awareness. You have a mental state of joy, but not an, not an exuberant, excited joy you have a mental state of, or you have a feeling of happiness, but it's a contented sort of happiness that, that's described as a tranquility. 
Uh, your body feels very pleasant when you get up from meditating. It's easy to meditate for uh, uh, an hour. It's easy to meditate for two or three hours. And when you get up from meditating, your body feels good. There's not, you know, nothing's falling asleep. Nothing feels stiff. You get up and you feel very good. Um, and you have this equanimity. And then in the tenth stage, you go out into the world and, and you begin to do things. And it stays with you. You still have this strong concentration. You still have this strong mindfulness. You have this state of joy. You have this feeling of happiness. You have this tranquility. You have this equanimity. And so in that way you can practice, uh, you can practice uh, vipassana in your daily life. So that's the tenth stage. There you go. That's the tenth stage. Questions? Yes. <coughs> Are all of the stages, um, are they all samatha? They're, uh, what is technically called samatha uh, could encompass the 8th, ninth, and 10th and stages, but the fully developed samatha is the 10th stage. So what about the first through seventh? What, what's the first, well, the first, the first three are that's considered just the, the beginner stage. And then uh, you have uh, what's, what's called the, the preliminary concentration of a meditator. Um, or I call it, in my outline of uh, these things, I call it the, the uh, uh, skilled concentration in stages four through seven. Because when you achieve stage four, you've achieved something they cannot be done without training and that most people cannot do. Most people cannot sit for uh, even 15 minutes with their mind on one thing without forgetting it and their mind wandering. As a matter of fact, William James, uh, around the turn of the century, uh, wrote, made the statement that the human mind couldn't stay uh, focused on the same object for more than 15 seconds. <laughs> You know, and he was, uh, uh, I think as you know, he was a very brilliant, very dedicated uh, explorer of the mind and psychologist, but he was totally unaware of the uh, contemplative disciplines of the East. They hadn't really been discovered uh, to that degree uh, in American and European society, and certainly uh, science was totally unaware of them, you know. So, uh, to be able to sit for 45 minutes or an hour uh, and keep your mind on, on the same thing, which is what defines stage four, is actually a rather remarkable achievement. And that's the beginning of skilled concentration. And then, to be able to do that uh, with, in, in what we call a relatively single-pointed way, with uh, very few thoughts, arising and what thoughts do arise uh, not able to disturb the mind in any way, which is how we describe the seventh stage. That is, that is the complete development of skilled concentration. When you go to the eighth stage, you've moved to, you've made kind of a quantum level movement. Effortless concentration, um, of course the fact that it's effortless is quite significant in itself. And it's effortless because you just trained the mind so well that now the mind behaves, you know. 
It's like training your dog to sit so well that you tell him to sit and he stays sitting. You know, you don't have to keep telling him to sit down again. <laughs> so when your mind is trained to the point where you have effortless concentration, just the fact of effortlessness is, is uh, really a big step. But it's also what it makes possible. It makes possible that sort of uh, spacious awareness, of, uh, the, the spacious mind of choiceless awareness possible. It makes exploration possible. So because you can move your mind around from one thing to another without losing that quality of concentration and clarity, you can investigate your mind. You can practice vipassana. You can do all kinds of things with your mind that uh, are uh, otherwise quite a bit more challenging to do. And then, of course, it is uh, in, in achieving this sort of effortless concentration, there is this unification of the mind that, as I pointed out to you, there really all are all kinds of different mental processes continuously taking place in your mind some of them so autonomous that you could almost regard your mind as being made up of a number of different minds. And especially sometimes they can even, it becomes obvious that they're even working uh, in opposition to each other. But what happens in effortless concentration is you don't have any different parts of your mind uh, working in opposition to each other or even working at a tangent to each other. Uh, most most of your mind has become unified in this single intention of, uh, of, of practicing this uh, clear, uh, focused awareness. And so that's, that's a very remarkable thing in itself. It is related to the effortlessness because the only way that you're able to be effortlessness is if some other part of your mind isn't going to take advantage of your lack of vigilance to start introducing what it thinks are all kinds of important thoughts to be thought about. So, uh, the unification of mind and, and the effortlessness are, are very much uh, linked to each other. Um, and it seems that the natural state of the mind, when there is this degree of unification, produces uh, this, this state of joyfulness. And it seems not to be limited just to meditation. Because if you think about it, um, we all have those experiences where you are very focused on doing something. If you have a hobby and you're very focused on doing this thing, you have this, this sense of... of, of happiness and joy that arises in association with that. And it's not that you're single-pointed, because your hobby may involve all kinds of mental activity, but it's that all of the different parts of your mind are kind of focused on the same thing at the same time, rather than being going in different directions. There's a psychologist, Csikszentmihalyi is his name, a Czech psychologist. And he has studied this extensively, and he calls it flow. 
Um, he seems, at least at the time, at the time he wrote the book that I read, he seemed to have been unaware of this as a phenomenon in meditation. But he has studied it for many years and described it uh, extensively in uh, different people. Like he's, uh, there are surgeons who, you know, when they're doing, when you're doing brain surgery, you're very focused. And there are surgeons who say that 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 they're happy, they're never happier than when they're doing surgery, and that when they're completely focused and completely absorbed in doing surgery, they experience this blissful, joyful happiness. And, of course, he, he studied this in all kinds of different circumstances and found some people are more prone to it than others. But what he found that they all had in common was this, this, this sort of uh, unified focus of their mind, that their, their total being was going into this one activity, and it gave rise to joy. And when I read about that, I immediately recognized, well, yeah, that's what we experience in meditation, too. When we bring about this unification of the mind, so different parts of the mind aren't trying to pull in different directions, we experience that. So I attribute this joy that arises to being almost like a natural state of the mind when it's not uh, when it's not in uh, uh, a, a state of, of self-disturbance uh, and disruption. So. This eighth stage of effortless concentration through the tenth stage can be regarded as a whole new level of concentration, uh, corresponding to uh, uh, what is in the sutras called, or, or actually, I guess not the sutras, in the Vasudhi Magha it's called Upachara Samadhi, or uh, uh, access concentration. And I, I just call it the concentration of an adept. Because when you've been meditating long enough that you can enter into this effortless concentration and enjoy this sustained, joyful happiness. And you get it for shorter periods of time in, in, in the seventh stage, where basically, basically you're having a period of, of unification of mind. Uh, but it has reached the point where it's effortless and sustained for for example, a whole sit of an hour or even two hours or more. So that's the three divisions that I would make. Beginner's concentration, that, that would be one to three. Skilled concentration, four to seven. And uh, adept concentration, eight to ten. Samadhi means concentration. So, uh, if we were to use the Pali word samadhi to describe these ten stages, um, we would we would say that um, stages four to seven are uh, what's called parikama samadhi, or the preliminary samadhi of meditation practice. Uh, and it just means the same thing as concentration. And that's why we translate that to concentration. And 8 to 10, upachara samadhi, or uh, uh, access concentration, or adept concentration. So samadhi means concentration. And in the, uh, in the Buddhist literature, the distinction is made between ordinary samadhi, ordinary concentration, and... Uh, right samadhi that is the result of 
our cultivation and meditation practice. Ordinary, ordinary samadhi, ordinary concentration, is not the result of the training. It's the result of the interest that the object holds for you or the importance it holds for you. Anybody can be concentrated on something that they find interesting or attractive or important to them. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you are going to be rewarded in some way, make a lot of money, have pleasure, whatever, as a result, uh, uh, but in order for that to happen, you have to be concentrated, well, then you'll have concentration. But that's ordinary concentration. That's not the result of... It's, that's not... That's dependent upon the object, as dependent on the external object and the circumstances. The right concentration that's due to mental training, or, uh, uh, yeah, mental training, what is different about it from ordinary concentration is you can take something that isn't inherently interesting, like the breath, and have your mind stay on it because you intend for it to. That's what makes it completely different than ordinary concentration. Because as you find in the first two stages, ordinary concentration, as soon as you lose interest in the object, or your, uh, the, the tricks that you've used to help keep yourself engaged with the object, as soon as that interest wears off, your mind takes off and goes somewhere else. So, so that's really the important difference between the third and the fourth stage. In the fourth stage, you can actually keep your mind for a long period of time on something just because you want to, not because the object is interesting. <laughs> And people a lot of times don't understand that. You know, they start to meditate and they say, what's so interesting about the breath? Why are we spending all this time... Why are we spending all this time looking at the breath? What's so interesting about that? In a sense, the whole point is that there's not really interesting anything interesting about it. <laughs> yes. Um, question about the, the, uh, the kind of movable concentration that you were talking about, I think you said in the eighth, mm-hmm. in the eighth stage. Yes. Um, does that, do you still have to have like an anchor point while you're doing that? So in other words, you have two, two points of concentration or would it just be one less, that's floating around? Less and less, less and less. Yeah, what, what you discover uh, fairly soon is that you can, you can allow your attention to move, or you can deliberately move your attention from one thing to another and without uh, deteriorating uh, the quality of your concentration. But at first, the, the strength of this isn't that much. So you might, you might find it starts to deteriorate, and if it does, you just bring it back to the breath or bring it back to the soles of your feet, and, then, and you, you, you recenter, and then you can resume the, the, uh, the, the movable concentration. But it doesn't take very long to where you hardly ever need to do that. The, you know, the, the, the mind just behaves. It is, as the Buddha describes it, malleable and wieldy. Something's malleable, of course, if you can bend it and shape it to your purposes. And the mind is malleable in that sense, that you can 
hold it on one thing or you can move it from thing to thing to thing. And it's wieldy and, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to do that. It's, uh, so, uh, it's a mind that's malleable and wieldy. So, um, just to follow up, if the, uh, if the new meditation object then, let's say, is unreliable and it deteriorates, um, is, is that any kind of problem for that type of concentration or can it just sort of go back to your breath? Uh, well, if you shouldn't, if you move from one object and then you settle your attention on another object, you're unlikely to experience much deterioration in concentration because you're still staying on the same thing. Uh, where initially you might start to have a deterioration in concentration is if you're continually moving from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, in that way. That's where you start to experience a deterioration, in which case you need to go back to something and fix the mind on it for a little while to, to bring the power of your concentration back up again. And of course, the, the best thing to do is a familiar meditation object, like the sensation of the breath or like the sensation of, of the feet when you're walking. Because, of course, you have thousands of hours of conditioning of the mind to stable concentration. So as soon as you bring it back to that, your concentration is going to come back to full strength. But it's usually very easy to change concentration objects with no problem at all once, time, once you've reached the eighth state. So that, for example, if you have sensations of pleasure that arise in your body, you can cease to observe the uh, uh, sensations of the breath and focus your attention on the pleasantness of those sensations. Or if you have a light appear uh, in, your, in the, in the vis- visual, visual space, you can uh, shift your attention from the meditation object to that light as a nimitta and, uh, and let it develop. And you won't have a problem with your concentration. With, with the nimitta, when it's, when it's early in the process, the nimitta may fade and disappear. But you don't have, it won't be a problem with your concentration. But you'll, you'll need to bring your concentration back to the breath and give the nimitta a chance to arise again. Or in the case of bodily sensation, sometimes that happens. You'll have is a really delightfully strong sensation arise in some sort of your, part of your body. And if you shift your attention to that and take it as a meditation object, sometimes at first it will just sort of break up and disappear. You'll go back to your breath and then wait for something, wait, wait a little while and then try it again. But it's not the concentration, it's these it's these other phenomena that you're, you're going to. If you were taking something external, shifting your attention away from your breath to a tree, you're going to stay nicely focused on that tree. And really the point is that you can then start expanding your awareness. It's not just the tree, but your mind's reaction to the tree, the different ways that you experience the tree visually and otherwise, you know, in other words, you're, you're, you're no longer on one object. You're not looking at a tree. You're exploring your mind, you're exploring other senses, and you can explore all of these and, and not be in danger of having your concentration disintegrate into just the ordinary state of uh, uncontrolled uh, movement.
Yes. Um, I always doing a sitting meditation in night time before I go to bed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, I have a timer. Sometimes uh, it's over one hour is enough. Mm-hmm. Then I go to bed. Yeah. But I cannot sleep. A sounds call me get up and <laughs> give up meditation again. But I say no. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> is it possible? <laughs> to if it is which possible to um, ask me to uh, wake up. Get up and meditate again. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, is that is that usually when you meditate every day? Is before you go to bed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because daytime is quiet. Mm-hmm. Just to uh, follow that question, uh, I have a, a different effect. As a matter of fact, a different uh, situation in a different time. I, I meditate usually uh, two or three times a day, usually in the morning, and find a chance uh, during the day and uh, before I go to sleep. And I find that uh, in the morning it's, uh, it's the best time because I can concentrate very easily. Uh, before I go to sleep, and uh, I couldn't concentrate that well. But after I meditate, I feel so comfortable and I can just mm-hmm. just crash right away. And mm-hmm. I sleep like a baby and it will, it will be just immediately I go to sleep. And in the afternoon uh, or in the morning, uh, sometimes I meditate uh, and all the sensation uh, keep your body extremely comfortable and I find sometimes it's not uh, uh, some people tell me that uh, when you do meditation you're supposed to have all these energy and concentration of course and you're ready to uh, run for your business Uh, as a matter of fact uh, after meditation I wanted to kind of it's not that I'm sleepy or anything, it's very cozy and uh, I wanted to uh, get in bed and kind of cozy for a while <laughs> rather than uh, go outside and fight for the world. Can you, can you uh, comment on that? Is that the why? <laughs> right situation or maybe a different track? <laughs> Maybe, maybe it's a deeper wisdom in you saying, you know, does this really make sense, this going from <laughs> doing all this stuff? <laughs> uh, I don't know, your mind is bright and clear, but you just, uh, it, it, you, you're just not motivated to go out and do things? Uh, you know, uh, it's remind me like... Uh, an afternoon nap. After a nap, or or you woke up in the in the morning. I mean, mm-hmm. the outside snowing and raining or whatever, but inside is warm and cozy, uh-huh. and you just want to kind of stay a little bit longer mm-hmm. to keep that feeling intact. Yeah. That's how I feel. You know, th- that's so much like the. It, it it seems to me so much like just a continuation of that feeling when. 
when we're having a really good meditation and the body just feels really, it feels really good sitting there and you don't want to move and the mind is so peaceful and at rest and, and why disturb all of this? <laughs> so, uh, I, like I said, I think I'll go back to what I said before. I think this is a, this is a very sensible reaction to <laughs> comparing that with going out and, and, and being intensely active. Um, can I respond to his? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just the opposite. I mean, after I do at home, mm-hmm. I do two or three times meditation, and I find that uh, I have lots of uh, energy. Uh, usually, if I don't do meditation after lunch, I wanted to take a nap or I feel you know drowsy. But if I do meditation, mm-hmm. I don't need a nap. I only sleep. Uh, for no more than five hours, then I can just uh, work all day. Mm-hmm. Just uh, the opposite. And after I uh, done the meditation, I come come out of the meditation. I see everything very bright. Uh, you know, the flower, the leaves, the sky. It's extra light. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just uh, weird. Mm-hmm. I I don't mean to. I wanted to go out the world uh, to have a. Uh, Five for my career or something. I don't have that kind of uh, mm-hmm. desire, but I do find that I enjoy life more. Mm-hmm. I I can understand that too. You know, I you know I I share basically share all of these experiences, and I think I think as as different individuals, we may you know I I, I look at the two of you and. You are a very energetic, outgoing person by nature. And I look at, at Scott, and he's a very peaceful, calm, very deliberate person by nature, you know. And so what, what I hear the two of you saying is that, I mean, these are both things I think that probably everybody experiences in meditation, uh, to some degree or another, but by Scott's nature, one predominates, and by your nature, another predominates. But the aspect of being more alert, more awake, more alive, you know, um, that uh, that's common to everyone, but I think with you it manifests in that energy wanting to flow out for, outward and just, you know, to become a sort of... of, of joy of being alive. Um, and that same uh, awake, alert clarity, but also accompanied by the tranquility and the peace and the focus, you know, works a little bit differently in uh, another person. And you experience still the same thing, the focus and the clarity and the peace and everything else, but just how you manifest it. So I think you two are wonderful examples of um, uh, what you're describing is wonderful examples of the effect of meditation, you know, uh, uh, essentially on all of us, but in, in a stronger form with each of you as an individual. And it points out the fact that we are all individuals. We're not all going to have the same meditative experience. Even these things that I talk about in the ten stages in general, you know, the meditative joy. For some people, it's so intense that, you know, they almost can't stand it. For other people, it's... It's joy, but 
you know, it's not all that strong. It's not all that uh, intense. And uh, they started like, what's all the fuss about? Yeah, this is really nice, you know. (laughs) So, a lot of individual variation. I know our time's up, but can I ask one more question? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have questions about this afternoon's um, guided meditation. Yeah. We're talking about something about um, your breath make up your sensation, your sensation make up your body. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Or, I mean, how does that play into your meditation? Well, I was pointing out, I was just pointing out something to you that. Um, That's really all there is. There is those sensations other than what your mind adds to them. Uh, so you were sitting there meditating with your eyes closed, and I said, I had you paying attention to the sensations here, and I said, notice that that's all there is. There is no air in that. There's only those sensations. The air is inferred, it's imputed, you know, uh, and uh, as is the nose, we we take those sensations and we uh, we infer the existence of the body, and the sensations of the body as a whole are our whole. Our whole experience of having a body is only the result of sensations, the sensations of the body itself, and also, of course, we can we can see our body, we can you know experience it through other sense organs, but it's only through the sense we we don't have a direct experience other than through the senses, and in the simple example of the breath. The way we normally speak of it, you know, I, I speak to you of your breath, and uh, you put your attention there, and you have all these ideas, breath, air, nose, in, out. But all of those things are uh, added on to the sensation afterwards, they're not inherent within it. So I was just pointing that out. I also, along the way, was pointing out to you that they were constantly changing. Uh, they were never the same for two moments in a row. So, these these very obvious observations are what helps uh, helps to uh, lead us into a fuller understanding and recognition of uh, impermanence and emptiness, selflessness. Yes. Uh, may not be today, but uh, during this retreat, uh, can you talk about uh, no self, uh, that particular subject, uh, as far as uh, what's the concept and how to, uh, what to practice to uh, to get there? Yes, that's a that's a very. Very good topic. Yes, yes. No self, and how to 
practice in order to have an awareness of no self. We will do that. So, um, yeah, you have a question? No, just refer to you know, Scott's uh, the question is just uh, what popped on my mind. Mm-hmm. It's a conceptual, I mean, the, in the study, the, you know, the, the selfless, you know, emptiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the somehow it's enhanced. The, I know it's you know uh, real experiences through the uh, vipassana and the uh, um, uh, samadhi, and mm-hmm. you see the the truth, the reality. Yeah. But I'm I'm, I'm I'm saying is you know usually we are uh, the three step you know, study practice and the realization. Mm-hmm. So I'm I mean it's supposed to support uh, supporting each other, enhance yeah. each other. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And that's that's why yeah, the three things go together. So so that's why uh, having a clear idea of uh, the uh, the meaning of emptiness and the meaning of no self as well as as doing the practice, those work together to bring about realization. And of course, uh, a certain degree of realization is necessary in order for you to really understand what you study. You know, so um, it's it's a it's a process of uh, maturation of knowledge. But the study, or listening to a Dharma talk is a form of study, right? Just as reading and things like that. And uh, otherwise, you do the practice. And um, as, uh, as a very, uh, as another meditation teacher who came and visited me today said, we were having a conversation, and he said that, um, uh, if somebody just does nothing and sits still and practice samatha and vipassana, eventually the whole of the Dhamma will be revealed to them. And I said, yes, that's true, but do you tell them it might take them several lifetimes? <laughs> <laughs> so, in this way, study is so important because the practice, without a, without a good, clear idea of what the goal of the practice is and, and the meaning of these concepts, understanding the meaning of these concepts helps greatly. And then doing some analysis to, to satisfy ourselves that these, uh, these aren't just ideas, that these are realities. Which, you know. uh, according to, uh, to her uh, comment, is that possible that if a person listen to Dharma and engage and truly believe, and then this person started to change his or uh, her behavior, and uh, can that kind of listening is already some kind of samadhi or vipassana? So, can really change this person's behavior because who truly believe and engage and then start to change? Uh, 
help? Certainly it can, but not by itself. I, it's, you know, uh, I, I don't think just... Uh, I can't imagine any way in the world that just studying or just hearing the Dharma. There has to, you know, even though uh, we see in the sutras that the, the Buddha would give a teaching on the Dharma and by hearing it somebody would become enlightened, but uh, I can't see any way that that could happen except that already there had been many other things that prepared that person so that this was just sort of the final step in the process. This, this wasn't the totality of it, that somebody uh, who was nowhere, uh, who was completely undeveloped in any way towards wisdom could just by hearing something uh, come to that point. So, but somebody who uh, who combines study with practice and uh, all kinds of different practices, the practice of virtue and the practice of the perfections and things like that, who prepares himself in uh, in, in that way, of course, uh, you know the practice and the study work together, and it could be that if with everything else being present that it is, it is hearing the Dharma that provides the, the last step in the process. But uh, I, I don't think anywhere in the Dharma you'll find it said that uh, enlightenment can be achieved by study alone. Although some people act as though that's true to some people. Uh, some people spend their whole life studying the Dharma and they never do a minute's practice. And, uh, I think what they end up with is a lot of nice ideas in their head. <laughs> the practice, the practice is, is essential. But it could come before as well as after the mm-hmm. hearing. Well, then... Um, Why don't we stretch for a few minutes and then we'll sit together.